Yeah. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Tom Oates. Professor Tom, so good to have you here. You are in what looks like a very narrow office, somewhere <laughs> in the darkest or lightest Midwest. Yeah, it's uh, mid-afternoon here in Iowa City. means that the sun is making its descent, and um, it's pretty cold out there. Um, but uh, wrapping up the semester and here to approve final grades as they come in just ahead of the deadline. So my next question, what are you thinking about? What's preoccupying you now? It's probably getting those grades done and getting them endorsed, <laughs> yeah? Yeah, most immediately. That is, um, I'm sort of ticking off classes as they come in, but um, I'm uh, about to embark on a um, semester-long hiatus. I'm on a sabbatical in the spring, and so I'll be oh, working on some projects. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, in addition to that, of course, there's all kinds of terrible things on my mind about uh, the state of global politics and national politics and even local politics here in Iowa, which has recently become a deep red state um, with some serious implications for uh, scholarly work, unfortunately. I had a conversation with Michael Deli Carpini just yesterday. Mm. Where he was saying that in a semi-triumphant way, people at the Ivies had been saying, well, at least none of this is going to touch us. It's all <laughs> affecting public schools. And then whammo. Right. <laughs> the right. vicious right has taken aim at them. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, um, uh, I mean, the Ivies are never far from any conversation in the United States about the state of higher education, although they're only a very tiny handful of universities and educate a very small percentage of uh, college graduates. Um, but here in Iowa and many other states, um, there's only a small handful of state-supported universities, and um, they function on a local level as the sort of uh, sort of local elite universities. And um, as a result, they come into the crosshairs of um, uh, right-wing politicians from time to time. And this is one of those times, unfortunately. Iowa is a very, very famous university. It's one of the, the great universities of the United States. Very strong historically in obviously famous areas like the writing program, but mm -hmm. also journalism, one of the fields you're working, and many, many others. Mm -hmm. I wasn't aware that the state itself had gone so far right. Could you maybe tell us a wee bit about that? To the extent this doesn't isn't going to end your tenure. Yeah. <laughs> I'll endanger your sabbatical. Yeah, right. I don't want to endanger that. Um, well, I'll give you a brief history. I mean, it, 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 it leaned Republican for a lot of the 20th century until the last, maybe the last quarter or so of the 20th century when... Um, it, there were some, uh, there were more and more Democratic politicians elected to Senate. Uh, we had a long-serving Democratic Senator, Tom Harkin. Tom Harkin, yeah, very, um, and very influential in committee yeah. service. Yeah. Yeah. And um, 
the state house would go sort of back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. There was a long serving Republican senator or uh, sorry, governor, uh, but he was a pretty moderate governor or moderate Republican for many years. Um, but around the time of the uh, 20 teens and especially in 2016, um, things began to change really dramatically. Um, Iowa went for um, Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012, um, but went for Donald Trump in 2016. Probably more um, importantly for people in the state, at least, um, it also meant that the state house, uh, both of the houses of the legislature and the state house, uh, went Republican for the first time in decades. And um, the uh, governing party immediately set about implementing their agenda, um, which had become uh, quite quite a bit more conservative than it was in the 1970s and 80s when things were a bit more divided. Um, and, you know, I've sort of been hoping that things might change over time, but um, each subsequent election has brought a sort of deepening of that conservatism. Um, you know, I, I know that things can change. I'm holding out hope that, uh, that things will change soon, but, um, right now, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to muster that optimism of the will that, mm -hmm. uh, she talks about. <laughs> it's in, in much of the rural Midwest in the United States, something that a lot of people outside the U S never knew. Sorry, I'm just dealing with a very awkward, difficult cat, uh, <laughs> is that there's a long tradition of quite radical agrarian socialism, mm -hmm. particularly in Minnesota, mm -hmm. but it existed in Iowa as, as well. What became of that heritage, do you think? That is a really good question. Um, I, I used to live uh, as a child. I lived in Wisconsin, too, and that was another state that had a uh, the, the city of Milwaukee had a socialist mayor for a time. Um, it was a real uh, bastion of progressive politics in the early 20th century. Um, and throughout a lot of the early part of the, the pre-war years, at least pre-World War II. Mm -hmm. um, and what has happened to that is, is a really interesting question. Um, Iowa was never one of those sort of very progressive states, right, but it right. was a place where there was a strain of progressivism and it has really been put on its heels uh, in recent years. I think that there's, I mean, a lot of this has to do, I think, perhaps with the farm crisis of the 1980s in which a lot of independent um, farmers lost the ability to maintain their independence and had to sell to big corporate agricultural firms. Um, that was a real shift in um, economic and daily life for a lot of people. Yes. Um, and, the you know, as happens in lots of places, the way in which sense gets made of that um, often shapes the politics of the day. And so that's um, that that went in a very conservative direction and um, then eventually a more reactionary direction. Uh, uh, direction and that's sort of where we are now so um, yes i think yeah. often when people talk about the romance of rural life in the united states and support yeah. things like the farm bill they don't realize that what they're supporting is <laughs> urban-based 
multinational right. corporations. Right. Yeah, and often foreign. Um, uh, uh, yes, foreign it, right. well, uh, uh, corporations, which is now another thing that the the right is leveraging as a part of their grievance politics. So it's um, it's uh, interesting times. But you know, there is a there is a legacy there um, in the upper Midwest uh, to draw upon and hopefully to um, resist with. So. So tell us a bit about your plans for the sabbatical, assuming, as I say, you haven't jeopardized the whole thing by the last five minutes. I haven't got an email yet, so we'll see. (laughs) Um, I um, I'm going to be working on a book project. I have um, I have a co-authored book that's in production now with my colleague uh, Frank Durham, who's in the journalism school here as well. That's meant as a both Frank and I taught um, the history of media course here uh, for many years and um, struggled to find a text that did what we what we were really looking for, which was a um, a history of American journalism, journalism in the United States um, that highlighted the actual words that journalists used to make their arguments and also which highlighted the struggle. Um, in different moments in American history. So um, many accounts of journalism history in the United States focus on the sort of dominant trends um, of journalistic work. Um, what we wanted to do was put those those dominant um, politics in conversation with the resistance that was happening at the same time, often through sort of independent presses, through um, uh you know, the work of political radicals um, and so on uh, to try to shape this understanding of of what um, journalists talk about as the public, right? The public good, the public interest, which is always a construction. It's always something that has to be um, argued for. And um, very often the shape of those arguments are sort of um, under the radar of a lot of uh, journalism history, particularly the journalism history that undergraduate Uh, aspiring journalists learn. And um, that's really our target audience for that book. So that one's wrapping up. And um, there's another project that I've been working on for several years, kind of got slowed down significantly by COVID. Um, But that is a book on uh, playground basketball in the United States. I'm interested in how it sort of emerges in um, the early 20th century through the mid-century. Um, and exists kind of as this uh, pariah in uh, the basketball landscape. There are two major betting scandals that happen around um, college basketball in the early and late 1950s, both of which are tied to uh, playground tournaments that are held in New York City. Uh, For a time, college players were banned from playing in those tournaments. Um, But then um, when I was coming of age in the uh 1990s it became playground basketball became a real um kind of cultural phenomenon um there was the film white man can't jump which many people will be familiar with uh another um really classic film called above the rim um, which is part of the harlem trilogy um by barry michael cooper um which stars tupac shakur and then at the same time, there was a, a athletic apparel company called And One, which was uh, 
trying to break into the athletic apparel market. And of course, it was very difficult to find endorsers because um, uh, Nike, Adidas, and Reebok were all competing for the uh, the you know the golden children coming out of the uh, NBA draft. So instead, what And One decided to do was to highlight um, unknown streetball players, mostly in New York's Rucker Park. Um, and then eventually to take those players on tour as a kind of marketing strategy that corresponded with a, a similar move by Adidas in Europe, um, the Adidas Streetball Challenge. Um, and you had television programs growing out of that, video games. Um, and I kind of traced that whole history through to the 21st century and the 2021 Tokyo Olympics uh, at which um, three-on-three basketball was introduced as as a uh, Olympic sport. And one of the key things that I noticed about the three-on-three tournaments is that there's a DJ, um, there's an MC who is um, uh, sort of calling the game in a very colorful way that's very reminiscent of what would happen at Rucker Park. This is a famous outdoor basketball park in uh, Harlem, New York City. Um so I'm tracing that trajectory from sort of a uh, maligned, marginalized um, practice um, to a, a very mainstream practice um, that is evident not only at the Olympics, but also in the new professional league called Big Three, founded by the uh, hip hop artist um, Ice Cube. And um, so, so I'm interested in that. There's a lot of correspondence, of course, with hip hop. Um, and its growth um, in the 1990s and early 2000s, and a lot of the same issues involving appropriation, um, involving um, you know uh, community life, and um, trying to uh, carve out means of survival and creativity and expression mm. in um, urban spaces that were uh, ravaged by policies of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Um, I'm really interested in particular in this book at how the rise of streetball corresponds with a kind of uh, mainstreaming of the understanding of the inner city, the ghetto, as this sort of, um, you know, Donald Trump uses this language all the time as, as these places that are just, you know, godforsaken, awful landscapes that everyone should want to escape, um, when, of course, you know, the reality in many of those places is far more complicated and people are using basketball and other means of expression to try to carve out interesting uh, and fulfilling lives there. So I'm interested in that tension. Um, and that's what I'm hoping to explore in the book. I'm hoping to get um, most of this manuscript finished by the end of the summer. But um, as the last couple of years have taught me, um there's there's often some unexpected twists in the road so is there a lot of research still to be done or is it mostly writing structuring and writing it's mostly writing at this point so the the research has been done quite a bit of the writing has been done too so um hopefully without any bumps i can uh, i can bring this thing to to a conclusion and how did you go about bringing material together learning about these ph phenomena which in one sense, are connected, connected, as you've explained, 
Yeah. But another sense are disparate in terms of time and place yeah. and social forces impelling them. Yeah, it's it's a good question. There is um there's a lot of commercial material out there, obviously, from and one and all these other sort of uh corporations who attempted to capitalize on the popularity of streetball and to establish the popularity of streetball in a mainstream way. Hmm. Um, but and there's more than you might uh, or more, more than I expected to find out there about um, the people who who played a real role in helping to form it before it became mainstreamed and commercialized. So people like Greg Marius, who was a Greg Marius was a um, uh, hip hop artist, an early sort of innovator in hip hop, a member of a group called um, the uh, the Disco Four in New York City. He um, he and the other members of his group challenged a uh, rival um, hip hop crew to a basketball game, um, not at the Rucker, but at a at another park up in in Harlem, and they were really impressed with the turnout. Um, and so Greg Marius formed this sort of recurring annual tournament called the EBC, the Entertainer Basketball Classic, which has become this really major event. It's broadcast on ESPN. Um, David Stern has been there. Bill Clinton has been there. So um, it's become a really, uh, really mainstream event. But at the very beginning, of course, it was it was a way for Marius and other musicians to sort of sell their wares, their cassette tapes to members of the community and to promote their work where b-boys and uh mcs and djs could sort of uh showcase their talents um and basketball of course was part of it as well so uh marius is interviewed a lot in um uh new york newspapers throughout the 1980s and into the 1990s peter vesey who was a sports journalist for the um new york daily news and or was it the New York Post? It's escaping me now. One of the tabloids and became a major. When I was a kid, I remember seeing him on um, broadcasts of NBA games. He would be on television giving his yep. his analysis. But he actually formed a team um, for the entertain. Well, this was before the Entertainer Basketball Pre uh, uh, Classic. This was the Rucker Pro Am in the 1970s. But he formed his own team. Uh, and so he would write extensively about um, about the tournaments at the Rucker in the 1970s and 80s. So there are there's a lot of sources that you wouldn't expect to find. And there's um, there's also quite a bit of uh, journalistic writing on this. It's become a theme that um, long form sports journalists are are interested in. There's a famous book by Pete Axelm called The City Game, which is in part about this. Uh, and Rick Talander's um, Heaven is a Playground, which is uh, maybe more well-known. Um, and, and through those books, and I've also done some interviews as well, where it's possible, and unfortunately, Greg Maris, um, Marius has passed on, but there are, um, there are people around who were playing in those days as well. So, uh, so yeah, I've been, I've been lucky to connect with some of those folks, but also to find... Um, to find more than I expected to find because it's a, it's a project that I've been interested in for a long time. Um, but for, because it was difficult to find some of those sources initially, 
I kind of backed off of it and picked up some other interests um, before coming back to it now. And another thing that led me back to playground basketball was the work in American studies and cultural studies and cultural geography on uh, race and space and place. And um, it, I'm very interested to see what role sport can play in our understanding of that, of those phenomena. So, um, uh, uh, yeah, I picked it up again and hopefully we'll be putting it down sometime in the near future. So it's, it's partly interviews, mm -hmm. partly archival, mm -hmm. and some of it's probably your own memories. Uh, some of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely at the beginning, um, for, uh, tracing down the names of people. Um, uh, some of these people were difficult to find in part because they were known to me by their nicknames. Players in, in streetball tournaments are rarely referred to by their actual names. They're, um, and there's no box scores. Um, <laughs> There's the outcome of the mat of the games themselves are sort of less important than the moments within the matches. And so yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of piecing together that had to come from memory originally to to make that next step. You're right. And, and were most of these players African-American? I mean, mm -hmm. not ba not back in the 50s and 60s, perhaps, but yes. in the latter day incarnation. Yeah. And I mean, basketball in as a general cult cultural practice in the United States is a um, is a black dominated game at the highest levels. Um, that is especially true for streetball um, and for playground basketball. Playground was, I know that um, Philadelphia, which mm -hmm. many years was a real crucible yep. for people going on to college or directly to the NBA, had a big street tradition mm -hmm. that helped to nurture Many, many, many players who went on yeah. to pro careers. Yeah, there's that a few. Mostly black, I think. Yes, yes, almost, almost entirely. In fact, there's a kind of instructive example from the early 2000s. There was a player who, um, who didn't um, sort of cut his teeth in on the playgrounds uh, scene, but uh, his aesthetic, his style, the way he played the game very much reflected that particular style with an emphasis on ball handling skills and particularly ornate ball handling skills, a lot of tricks that are sort of less about effectiveness and more about sort of showing off yeah. or showcasing skills. Um, his name was Jason Williams. He was a white player from West Virginia. He was referred to as white chocolate, um, which, and, and, and sort of, I think that that example really highlights the degree to which this style of play was very much associated with blackness. Yeah. Um, and you, you get in a lot of U.S. sports an implicit denunciation of non-utilitarian black showiness in expressions nice. like blue collar. Yeah. Yeah. Or a playground move is universally a you know, if a coach calls something a playground move, that is not a compliment. That is always... <laughs> or showboating. Yeah, um, or showboating, a, a, right. A big one in association football in Britain is to denounce South American players mm -hmm. for exactly this kind of mm -hmm. activity. Yeah, the early days of... Trying to show Ronaldo. off, humiliate, yeah. but not necessarily 
to score a goal in the quickest way possible. Right. And somehow or other, it's better to kick, bite, and punch people and scream abuse at them <laughs> than right. it is yeah. <laughs> to showboat. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> and there are issues of masculinity as well as race. Uh, Absolutely. That, that course through that stuff, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Which, which, you know, that racialized masculinity and that the particular styles that people adopt on in athletic venues is, um, has been really potent for decades and decades. It definitely precedes playground basketball, but playground basketball does, um, provide a really interesting example. There is a kind of, um, mini panic in the late 90s, early 2000s, when a lot of this aesthetic is making its way into the NBA and players like Jason Williams, but also Allen Iverson. And I was thinking about Allen Iverson, Jay Latrell Sprewell. Yep. Yep. Tracy McGrady and many other players from that era who are um, self-consciously kind of um, bringing uh, some of the codes and um, styles of the playground and the street to the NBA arenas. And of course this blows up in 2004 with the malice in the palace, which for international listeners is a, um, a brawl between the uh, Detroit Pistons basketball team and the Indiana Pacers, um, which spilled into the stands and involved dozens of fans as well. The game was abandoned. The, um, Sports Illustrated um, uh, dealt with it in apocalyptic terms. The um, commissioner at the time, David Stern, um, banned one of the instigators for the rest of the season and imposed a dress code on players um, as, as a way of sort of, <laughs> as a weird way to identify the problem, right? But he, uh, he, he, he thought that part of the problem was the way in which um, these players were carrying in to the league a lot of these signifiers of hip-hop culture which they were very uncomfortable or what you know white executives and many people in the white fan base were very uncomfortable with so um it's a sort of interesting moment as well right at the peak of this of this stuff as well yes so um getting back to the book that's about to come out mm -hmm. if i could the journalism history mm -hmm. Who's that coming out with? Do you know who's the University publisher? of Illinois Press? Oh, a great press. Terrific. Yeah. Terrific. Uh, yeah. Another I state. Um, yeah. Yep. And a neighbor. <laughs> and, and well, a neighbor in a way. I mean, you guys, you, you go to watch the White Sox as a local <laughs> team, which right. is what, eight hours drive? Uh, it's it, no, it's it's a it's a mere four hour drive. Oh, it's yeah. only four hours. Sorry, <laughs> I, I was must have been thinking of the round trip. This is one of our selling points at Iowa, Toby. We, uh, <laughs> we talk about how Iowa City is a mere four-hour drive from St. Louis, sh Chicago, and Minneapolis. So, so this uh, is the interesting thing. People may not realize this, but pro sports uh, in the United States exist in places historically because of local broadcast audiences mm -hmm. uh, and the ability eventually after the war in the, from the 50s through coaxial cables to deliver sports from west of the Rockies back to the East Coast and Chicago audiences. And yeah. uh, 
for all sorts of reasons. That's why something like the Green Bay Packers are completely anomalous in US pro sports. And they're, they're a, a sort of welfare enterprise, mm -hmm. not sort of romantic welfare enterprise by a bunch of capitalist Republican billionaires mm -hmm. whose pleasures are subsidized by innocent duped taxpayers. But that's why you, you only get these formations in fairly big uh, cities and in uh, fairly dispersed states in population terms like yours. Mm -hmm. There's really no possibility of a, a, a big-time pro sports team. That helps but, to feed college sports, right. obviously, but it also means, as you say, that Iowa can say it's a – it's a mere four hours to go and watch the Bears. Yeah. Although you have to be there in person to watch baseball because Iowa is um, subject to blackouts for six major league teams. So all the all the surrounding teams are blacked out on television. I've had to go back to listening to my team, the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, via radio um, as I did when I was a kid, when I lived in when I lived in Wisconsin for time as a kid um after seven o'clock the local fm stations would shut down and i could hear very clearly the kmox signal from st louis which broadcasts live st louis cardinals games um and as a result the cardinals have a have a really big and dispersed fan base um they were the westernmost and southernmost team for uh decades um until the 1950s so um, but now in this um, generation, there's uh, a, a generation of students who grew up with, you know, lots more options. But um, even before that, their parents grew up with WGN, which was a um, originally a, a radio station, still is a radio station, but also has a television station. And that signal would reach most of the United States. Most so of the there, country. And it had all, was it, was it White Sox games, I think, that it had? Uh, it? Cubs originally. Cubs but originally. Now, now it's mostly more White Sox now. But, right. um, of course, they all have contracts with individual, you know, uh, Fox subsidiaries or whatever. Um, but, yeah, it's an interesting scenario for Iowans with an interest in in baseball. It's it's very it's a very hard product to get your hands on, and I kind of wish I followed a team on the West Coast or something. It would be easy. <laughs> so um, the book is coming out with the U of I Press, mm -hmm. and does it have? So you know, I mean, is it just to conjure a name? Is someone like Ida B. Wells an yep. a figure in it for you guys? Yes, that's a chapter. So we do um, sort of episode there. Are 12 episodes in U.S. history that we focus on um, from the revolution through to um, the last one is about uh, uh, AIM, the American Indian Movement in the early 1970s. Um, there were a lot of copyright issues and challenges with this book, especially because one of the goals was to give extended quotations from um, from the authors mm. who were arguing for different kinds of positions. So yes, Ida B. Wells and um, the Crusade Against Lynching is one of those chapters and uh, covers the late 1800s and early 1900s for international listeners or domestic listeners, U.S.-based listeners who might not know who Ida B. Wells is. She was a um, a school teacher turned journalist um, who uh, was um, sort of chased out of Memphis, Tennessee 
as a result of um, several of her friends being lynched and um, her writing about it. Um, and so she relocated to Chicago. Uh, she became kind of an international celebrity in the late 1800s and early 1900s, um, documenting the sort of claims that um, Southern white publics would create about um, about a lynching incident in which they would make a claim about uh, usually a sexualized crime being committed by the victim uh, of these lynchings. And she would show that this was not the case um, and uh, you know give give the lie to uh, to the lynching. So um, so that's one example. We talk about uh, the Black Panther, the um, newspaper published by the Black Panther Party in the 1960s. Um, we talk about the Young Lords as well, a, a Puerto Rican um, Marxist group in uh, both Chicago and New York City in the 1960s. Um, we look at uh, a number of other examples. We look at the Haymarket riot in um, the 1880s in, um, in Chicago, um, which was a sort of conflict between the forces of capital and anarchist leftist uh, labor organizers. Um, and that was an incident in which there was a, a very robust left-wing press that um, met with really intense resistance from the mainstream. Eventually many of the of the journalists who work for those presses were executed. So um, uh, we try to uncover some stories that are relatively well-known, but maybe not, um, maybe not all the details and certainly not the words of the, of the journalists who are trying to advocate for change or maintain the status quo. What exactly did they say? Um, and part of what we learned from that is, uh, you know, that you'll see, these arguments kind of repeating themselves in, in, in different ways, not exactly repeating, but maybe rhyming, right. As uh, Mark Twain talked about Mark Twain's another character in the book. We talk about um, the conflict over um, the uh, war with Spain that the United States engaged in, in the late 1800s um, and the advocates for an American empire overseas, which Twain was very much an opponent of um, in uh, concert with a really interesting group of allies <laughs> who came together uh, around that cause. So, so yeah, we look at 12 different, it, it proceeds in a chronological way, but really it's, it's their 12 separate episodes that we dip into and, and try to demonstrate how these conflicts played out and what role journalism had to play in those conflicts. It sounds like a fantastic book. Can I invite you to, invite your co-author for the two of you to come back to the pod when it's come out and yeah talk about it i think that would be really wonderful yeah uh, thank you maybe you'd like to invite someone else along who's read the book a sort of friendly <laughs> critic to talk about it i don't know but it'd be wonderful to have you both here because those are tremendous case studies in ida b wells instance mm -hmm. she actually writes you know African-American woman, we cannot trust the white press. She's very straightforward about this mm -hmm. in terms of what's happened with the coverage. But the other thing I wanted to say about this work, which I think is potentially really crucial, groundbreaking, is that other than people who perhaps have read Howard Zinn, 
Mm-hmm. Folks outside the United States tend to think there is no radical tradition, mm. whereas there's a long ongoing one from the working class of all colors, of all races, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even though it gets regularly smashed by the state mm-hmm. uh, per the forms that you've described, infiltrated, destroyed, people killed, people imprisoned. Mm-hmm. And that still today, you know, Fox News is watched by about three men and a dog, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it is taken by its opponents as holy writ for the entire United States. We're talking about one in a hundred people who've probably ever watched it for more than five minutes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if you were running ABC News in prime time and for one night you got the ratings of Fox News, you'd be out in your ear. Mm-hmm. And people do not understand that amongst all the horrible conservatism, Mm -hmm. reactionary politics, there is a beating heart of, you know, decent sort of liberal democracy and a really serious progressive strain. Now, I don't need to tell you any of this, but I feel as though I sometimes need to say this to people like me from elsewhere who Mm -hmm. haven't had the the, experience of many years living in the US and trying to understand it that I've had. Because... That history is simply absent from popular culture about the United States. Um, yeah, and you know, I, one of the really valuable things I think about digging into that history is that you can see the the ways in which coalitions of the left fractured, the w- ways in which they came together, um, where they succeeded, and usually in kind of you know partial ways, um, and yeah, where they for five minutes. Ahead. Yeah. (laughs) And where they failed. So one of our chapters is about um, one of our chapters is about the suffrage movement um, in the United States, which is, you know, something that takes up the better part of 70 years and um, is deeply fraught with racial politics as well, um, class politics, um, and uh, is opposed by many women. Right. And so part of what we found in writing that chapter are um, regular columns written in major newspapers by women opposing the suffrage movement in the 1910s, um, you know, right before the ratification of of the amendment, which gives women the right to vote. So um, so it really complicates our understanding, I think, of of how politics in the United States have have have, uh, unfolded. And I, I think it's really instructive for leftists to understand some of that history and understand that there is that history and also that has a lot to teach us about um, about the coalitions that we build today and how we might make them as more. And effective. the longstanding successes of anti-feminist femininity. Yeah, yeah those voices have not gone away at all. No. So uh, getting back, if I could, to your already published work. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about what's already out there that people might find, noting that you, I think, have dual appointments Yeah, in I do. journalism and mass communication right? and American studies. American studies, yes, which is a... Um, it is a intellectual tradition in the United States, American studies, that began in the... Um, between the wars... Uh, 
in many different places, including Iowa. Iowa was one of the first programs in American studies. It um, uh, it's an interdisciplinary field, uh, and it is now home to a lot of people who do cultural studies work. So if you attend the American Studies Association, for example, you'll see you'll see historians and you'll see um, people who are doing literary criticism, but you will also encounter people who very much identify as cultural studies scholars first and foremost. So um, it's a, a comfortable home for me there. Um, uh, my work uh, has focused almost exclusively on sports. Um, and that is just kind of a um, happy accident for me. Um, when I came to graduate school, I was not thinking about pursuing a career studying sports. I was interested in sports and I thought that there was a lot there to say, but I didn't uh, notice a lot of people who were interested in hearing about it. <laughs> and so I, you know, uh, would talk to some of my professors about, um, about my interest in it. And then they would notice that my research projects were on other topics. And, and finally the, Judy Pullenbaum, who became my advisor, encouraged me to pursue sports uh, as a topic. Mm. And um, so I was in a course uh, in which I had decided to do that. And it happened to be in the spring semester. And it, the paper happened to be due around the time that the NFL draft was being broadcast on uh, cable. The draft is... Um, so you you mentioned college sports before. College football is is a, an enormous sport in the United States. It is um, certainly in the top three, uh, and 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 well ahead of many professional sports leagues in terms of viewership and popularity. So these players are all pretty well known to a lot of sports fans already when they come out of college. Um, and the draft is where team professional teams claim the contract rights of these uh, college athletes who are transitioning into the pro game. So it's, it's essentially the draft is essentially a committee meeting where the teams claim the draft rights to players in a, in a certain order. It goes on for several days. There's no athletic activity of any kind. Um, and yet it was a major event on ESPN, the television um, network, um, the all sports television network that launched in 1979. And it's still a really major force in sport media. Um, uh, I, I, I was just interested in why, uh, this was such a big event. <laughs> why was this on television at all? That was an interesting question for me to, um, to dig into. So I started looking into the draft that eventually became the topic of my dissertation. And, um, I wrote a number of articles uh, about the NFL draft initially um, that were based on that based on that work, and then um, I, I I traveled around to a number of different institutions as some academics are wont to do. And uh, when I moved from my last position at Northern Illinois, where I was encouraged to only write articles, to the University of Iowa, I was told that I would need to write a book. So. Um, there was a lot about professional football and the mediation of professional football that I had not yet written about. So I, um, I took that up as a project. The draft was part of it, but it was one chapter of six. So 
the rest of that book is about, um, I look at, for example, uh, video games around um, the NFL. There's a very famous uh, and, and profitable franchise called Madden NFL. Um, so I focused on that, um, where that came from, uh, how it became so popular, um, and the ways in which it is sort of sold to audiences. Um, I was interested in popular television programs and and films that are set up on professional football, usually not a branded NFL team because the NFL is very reluctant to uh, surrender any control over how their league is narrated. But it's very clear that this is about professional football. So what are the kinds of stories that are being told there? Um, that book is called Football and Manliness. Um, uh, it is uh, published with, again, with the University of Illinois Press. Um, that was 2017, I think is when that was published. Um, since uh, I was promoted to associate professor, I've um, been pursuing this work on uh, that journalism history that I mentioned. I've also been pursuing work on this uh, playground basketball project. And now recently I've become interested in, and this is part of the football and manliness book as well, definitely a thread in there. Um, but I've become really interested in sort of right-wing populism and how right-wing populism is expressed through sport media, um, through places like Barstool Sports, which is a kind of online um, sports news and commentary site with um, a kind of uh patriarchal white nationalist um identity um although it it, it presents itself as mainstream entertainment <laughs> so uh, i've written a bit about that recently i'm also now becoming interested in um uh the 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 selling of soccer in the united states football as the rest of the world calls it but of course in the united states football is gridiron football um, and soccer was, you know, for decades, including when I was in high school, deemed in many places to be a sort of, you know, foreign interloper into American sports and an unwelcome one at that. And uh, it was regularly denigrated, but it was mostly ignored by U.S. media. And now what's interesting, I think, is the way in which um, uh, both FIFA and um, other entities are really interested in pushing soccer on the U.S. market and how a number of um, unrelated um, entrepreneurs have found ways to sort of uh, profit from from soccer. So television shows such as Ted Lasso and Welcome to Wrexham, which have a very didactic uh, kind of function. Um, they introduce U.S. sports fans. So for international listeners, I guess I should say briefly, U.S. sports are extremely parochial. And um, uh, if you watch SportsCenter, which is a sort of nightly um, highlight package, hour-long highlight package on um, ESPN, the major sports network here, you will see only American sports. Um, th there might be 15 seconds of, of soccer highlights, but... Uh, by and large, it's going to focus on the games that Americans play, uh, baseball, basketball, football, maybe hockey as well. Um, so what's interesting to me is now that we're in this sort of moment where uh, the um, 
Copa America is going to be hosted in the United States this summer in 2024. Next summer will be the Club World Cup, the FIFA new tournament that they are launching in the that'll also be in the United States in 2025. Of course, the US, Mexico, and Canada will be co-hosting uh the 2026 World Cup. And then there's a very real possibility that the Women's World Cup in 2017 will be hosted in the United States. So uh this four-year period seems like a really important um uh push by FIFA and by a number of other sort of uh, commercial entities to make soccer a mainstream sport in the United States. So I've been interested in that in combination with how football, gridiron football, um, has been uh, reaching out to a more global audience as well. And of course, this is these are the same forces that are pushing both of these, um, these um, movements. Uh, but I, what I find really interesting is how, um, you know, gridiron football in the United States was the American game. Soccer was this sort of foreign, weird sport that we should not be interested in. Uh, in a similar way, I imagine um, that in England, um, gridiron football was sort of looked at as an interesting novelty, but, you know, maybe not the same, not having anywhere near the same prestige as uh, as soccer does or football, as they would call it there. So um, this reversal, right, this this interest in growing these audiences all of a sudden and in this very concentrated way sort of has my attention as well moving forward. It's a, a classic Leninist problem of capitalist overproduction yeah, exactly. and supersaturation of the domestic market. Exactly. So the English Premier League TV rights are starting to plateau. Sales were just announced a week or so, a couple of weeks ago. And they're up on the previous five years, but not in line with inflation. Right. And that was true of the previous lot. Mm -hmm. We don't know yet the international sales figure, but mm -hmm. for the current period that's about to soon to expire, international sales were higher than domestic ones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the NFL for some time has had occasional matches in Britain, but it's gone yep. to Mexico now yep. uh, where – the oligarchic light-skinned ruling class likes the NFL a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's part of their enjoying <clears throat> English language culture mm -hmm. and differentiating themselves. Yeah, the NFL just announced that they'll be playing a match in um, in Brazil. That's uh, right. Yes, I forgot that. But that, had, that was just announced. And it's the same, okay. the same sort of deal. Yeah. Uh, very, very interesting. So... Yeah. This is a broad palette. All of this is occurring, though, against a background where many people say sports journalism, ugh, it's over. <laughs> That's yesterday's shtick. Mm -hmm. And what, in general, journalism graduates, journalism, the most derided undergrad mm -hmm. major in the US, the one where mm -hmm. most graduating majors say they wish they'd done anything else, like archaeology or ancient Greek. <laughs> now... What you need to do with this degree is get into PR, mm -hmm. public relations, which just rebranded itself, as you know, as strategic communication. And sports journalism is a classic area where, you know, anybody can do it now. Mm -hmm. And the, the grand old days, grand or not, of Sports Illustrated's famous authors, mm -hmm. uh, whom we could all name, but, but, you know, great white men of U.S. 
literature. Mm-hmm. They're all in it, just mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. Uh, from Don DeLillo back to Faulkner, mm-hmm. uh, that those days are gone, that the, the world of the lengthy sort of Roger Angel-like piece, uh, Roger Angel, who till he was 100, was writing about baseball for the New Yorker, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's right to say. Those days are gone. It's instantaneous stuff, and it's becoming rapidly robotic. Mm-hmm. So the recent AI scandal about Sports Illustrated, which wasn't about writing sports reports, but was about, in fact, advertising features mm-hmm. or featured advertising, that's not that big a deal because it's 15 years now mm-hmm. since Yahoo Sports and others started having artificial intelligence writing basic prose about mm. sporting fixtures. So that's my provocation to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how, do, how do you view that side of the story and what do you tell your students? Well, what I tell my students is that it has never been more urgent for sports journalists to rethink what it is that they're doing and the ways that they're doing it. And of course, journalists, individual journalists don't have a lot of autonomy over exactly what their work looks like. But collectively, I think we need a really uh, profound rethinking of what sports journalism's role is. Um, the PR angle that you mentioned earlier is interesting because that's essentially what sports journalism has been for <laughs> many, many decades. It is you know, uh, free advertising for yeah. privately held corporations to let potential consumers know where and when they can consume these products and um, what the context is so that they will understand why they should consume these products and so on. Meanwhile, um, you know, during the lifetime of my undergraduate students, especially the conventional undergraduates, um, there's been a, a, a just a litany of horror stories emerging from uh sport in the United States and in many other places as well. Issues of sexual abuse by um, coaches and doctors over um, what who are often minor. These are athletes who are minors who are not yet um, 18 years old. Um, The exploitation of young players who have uh, limited financial prospects um, in ways that is deeply disingenuous and does a lot of real harm. Um, uh, abuses in college football programs all across the country, including ours right here in Iowa City, in which you know some really um, uh, appalling abuses have happened. And and you know we we're finding out about these things after the fact. Of course, there's also the the whole question about head injuries and um, uh, the the problem of chronic traumatic encephalopathy (CTE) um, and its effect on football players, but also soccer players and many other kinds of athletes, um, and the way in which the the NFL um, tried to sort of cover up um, the realities that were starting to emerge from the scientific consensus, um, and these are all things that. Uh, many sports journalists were were pretty late to. 
Um, but they are also scandals that we have sports journalists, so, sometimes not sports journalists, sometimes these are metro reporters or straight news reporters who are uncovering these stories. But this is the beat that sports journalists should be covering. And this is, you know, first and foremost, what they should be thinking about the safety uh, and well-being of the athletes who are the labor uh, from which these profits are all derived. Um, so, I mean, I, I am troubled by that. I'm troubled by the fact that, as you say, the, the sort of uh, breakup of legacy media and um, the influence of public relations and automation are, are having an influence in exactly the wrong way <laughs> of the kind of transformation, the sort of radical rethinking that we need to do about sports journalism. Um, it'll be easier to write PR in the future than it is now. It's already easy, but it will be much easier in the future. It'll be that much harder to do that work. But um, uh, you know, for people who really care about sports, I think, you know, need to think really carefully about, um, about what that requires of us as journalists. So, so that's what I tell my students, but, um, but yeah, I am really troubled by, um, by a lot of these. Uh, and there's conflict. a problem with a fanboy culture of sports mm -hmm. journalists Absolutely. and a problem of their low status within journalism. Yep. Yep. That unless yep. they work for ESPN in the, in the United States, for example, mm -hmm. or Sky Sports in, in Britain or, or Italy, uh, they are regarded as, you know, the toy room, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the toy store of the big department store. Right. Um, right. What sports journalism shares many um, aspects of its work in common with other forms of journalism, but it becomes the way in which journalists denigrate that those aspects of the of the work. Mm, um, mm. And sometimes with good reason, but sometimes as a result of a lack of reflection. Well, Tom, we're just about at the end of our conversation. I think I've extracted a promise from you or the probability that you and your co-author will re-emerge in the pod. Yeah. We'd love to. Set to fly once the new book is out. But mm -hmm. I wanted to give you the chance just to add anything that we haven't covered or change or enrich anything we have covered with final remarks. Well, just with respect to our last um sort of point that we're talking about with, with mm. sports journalism and the training of sports journalists. Mm. I'll just note that, you know, I, I mentioned when I was in graduate school, uh, you know, more than 20 years ago, uh, the idea of sports in the university seemed like, you know, I mean, it was relegated to the varsity athletic teams and maybe intramurals, but not something that scholars actually engaged with. And that has changed so much in the last 20 years. Um, and that's been really good to see in a lot of ways. Uh, but I do see a lot of new programs, especially around communication and media, um, who are embracing sports in which... Um, there seems to be a lot of emphasis on the kind of problems that we were just mentioning about, you know, training students to produce conventional forms of sports journalism, which are exactly the problem and which need to be interrogated and transformed. And so, um, 
you know, this is a, a real moment within the academy as well. There's a lot of interest um, and support from administrators for these kinds of majors. Um, and we have just created a, a, a sort of new version of that here at Iowa. There's a new major in sport, media, and culture that uh, my colleagues, Jennifer Sterling, uh, Emma Callow, and Travis Vogan have put together. Um, and our goal here is to do something very different and to, um, uh, uh, rather than sort of train students to replicate the work that's already being doing, to really take a, a close look at that and to think about how it might be done better. Um, and so I hope to see, um, you know, more, more work like that and more institutions taking up that kind of work. Beautiful. Well, Tom, thank you so much. It's time for us to be told that recording is no longer in progress. <laughs> it was <laughs> great you. to chat. Yeah, it was nice talking to you. Take care.